we took the natural step in calling talent agencies and 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 managers in in again um they literally told us to f off some literally hung up on us some told us not to call here ever again um and it was just never going to happen they, their clients would never do reality television um and so to forget it Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. So today we're here to talk about Surreal Life, one of, uh, one of the most iconic shows of the 21st century. The show was created by Chris Abrego on my left, or co-created by Chris Abrego on my left. It was initially commissioned by the WB Network, but it really kicked into overdrive when Brian Graydon, who's here on my right, brought it over from WB to VH1 um, in a move that doesn't happen very often and certainly certainly has never reaped fruit the way that this move did for any sort of show that had two lives like The Surreal Life did. I spent four and a half years at VH1 while Surreal Life and its uh, many, many offspring were being made, and I'm very lucky to have had such great seats for that ride. Uh, today, we're here in the beautiful Endemol Shine North American offices. That is more than mouthful. Here in North Hollywood, California, really, really beautiful offices recently redone. I'm so happy to be here to talk to two, two really titans of our industry. I worked for Brian for many, many years at VH1, and I've intersected in and around Chris's career for, for even more years than that. Uh, this should be a great discussion. So let's get to it. Let's talk about surreal life. I mean, I let off by saying one of the most iconic shows of the 21st century. Um, there's an argument to go for it that it's really more than one of. I mean, truly, the legacy of this show that we'll get into, everything from, from really changing the course of a channel, VH1, creating an entire genre, celebrity, which I believe, Brian, you coined, bringing people to television, at least with the spinoffs and the many iterations of Surreal Life, who, who had no home on TV previously, the tentacles for the legacy of this show are really remarkable, but we'll get into that down the line. So let's start at the beginning, and the beginning is with you, Chris, the light bulb. What was the light bulb moment for The Surreal Life? The, uh, the light bulb moment for the show, and one, one, first and foremost, thank you for saying all that. I think it was, you know, obviously when you're in that moment, you don't realize what it is you're building, and of course, it's an, uh, always an honor to be sitting across from and with Brian, because he really... As we get into, it, you'll see that without him, it would none of it would have even have been possible or grown to what it was in that sense. And so, but the light bulb moment was we were uh, looking for ideas and, and figuring out. I'd been working, you know, in newly in reality, real world was what it was, and of course, road rules was the shows what it was, and celebrities weren't doing unscripted. We were already at the very. If you remember those times, the very the bottom of the totem pole, and then underneath the totem pole, and underneath that dirt is where reality, our unscripted TV, uh, kind of stood at the time. So no nobody who was an actor or any, of, of any worth in that sense was not thinking of doing 
reality. Reality was for people who weren't celebrities, right? And there was this commercial, uh, and I think it was a, it was a Lipton uh, noodle commercial on television, and they were selling it when it's Lipton uh, rice or noodle. I can't remember, recall it correctly, but it was they had cooked. It was a commercial where when you're cooking Lipton rice, your family, and in when the camera came into the commercial into the kitchen, it was Sally Jesse Raphael making the noodles. And then in walked uh, George Hamilton, who was complaining about his uh, what would be his sister hogging the phone, who was Mary Lou Retton at the time. And it was a, just a bizarre commercial. And in the end, the tag ended with, when you're making Lipton, your family. And it, we were just, you know, with, with, with Mark Cronin, we were just like, what if, what if that was a show? Like, could those people live together? If you took these group of celebrities and actually got them to live together, like, that would be wild, wouldn't it? And so really, that was the light bulb. And, and starting from that, <clears throat> and we... And trying to really figure out how to do it, we really uh, thought about sitcoms. We really, and I give Mark a lot of credit uh, because he was one of the things that was like, well, what if we framed it and made the first reality sitcom? And we thought about that way. You know, and you think about the crazy neighbor on Three's Company, you know, the upstairs, downstairs, the, you know, the kind of like if you looked at traditional sitcoms and what were some of the devices in there, could we put together a reality sitcom? And that was the beginning of the genesis for it. And we, we did a ton of research. We looked at bookings. We looked at names. We put together the entire pitch before we took it out. And so I know your background also sure. was working. You started, you cut your teeth working on the real world Correct. show you mentioned. So, you know, there's many different ways you can take this. I believe the show was originally called Surreal World, even, it, right? It, so it there was, was certainly some, some <laughs> real world influences there, too. I, 100%. In fact, and, and I've, I've, I can share the story because I've shared it with John Murray. <laughs> uh, we, of course, came to them first, you know, when we wanted to partner up with them. Um, and uh, because we were calling it the Surreal World, because we thought it, w- it was a take on the, on the real world. Um, and the, you know, which, and I mean, this all due respect because she was an incredible woman. Uh, the late Mary Alice Bunham, of course, to, to, she, as John would say, she said, why would we partner up with you guys? We created this genre in a sense. And so we're like, well, yeah, but this is a different idea. We, and we wanted to partner with them on that idea and we couldn't come to an agreement. And so we, we moved on and decided to go at it on our own. And I had had a background in, you know, obviously with Drupina Murray um, and, you know, Real World Road was kind of making television. And at the time, Mark Cronin had a really strong comedy, uh, a background in comedy, like I think it was the X show, the X show he was making at the time. And so that's how we got paired up by uh, Chris Colin um, to work on the idea together. It was kind of a, a reality background and a comedy background. And that's what put us together. And then we thought we'd make sense. It was a natural fit to go to Peter Murray and partner with them on it. But it didn't work out. So we took it out on our own. So you take it out. And did, I mean, again, you said celebrities weren't doing TV. I, I believe the Osbournes had premiered at that time or it was right around that time, which right. Brian and I yeah. will get to in a minute. Yeah. But really, I mean, this was a very kind of revolutionary kind of out there idea. What was the, what was the perception it, in the marketplace? People honestly, think it's impossible? To, to this day, truly one of the best pitches I'd ever taken out. And Mark, who, again, who, if you know him, he's just really, you know, comedic. And the pitch was some of the, we had some of the, the best pitches in the room, meaning laughing, because we would do voices. We would do like, what you talk, we do, and imagine Gary Coleman comes out and he can't find his toothbrush and we'd say, what you talking about? And we were making up all these, you know, uh, anecdotes about what the show might look like. And, and well, Mark was doing voices and, and, and we were role playing in the rooms. So we would have everyone laughing their asses off. Uh, but then in the end, people were like, no one's going to book it. No one's going to do it. No, and so we would leave the room with a great meeting, 
but ultimately no offer or no 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 idea that we think we could really do it, except for one stop. And there was a gentleman named Keith Cox um, at the WB who said, listen, I, I think it's hysterical, but can you really book these people? And we, we had not tried. And he said, I'll tell you what, if this is the beginning of the cast contingent kind of days, um, he's like, if you put a cast together and you can actually get them to commit to it, we'll do it. And so he put that on the table and, and we went off to work to, to book it. And it was, <laughs> he, he was probably, everybody was almost right. It was nearly impossible. All right. So again, but you're writing the rules here. And I think a lot of the best shows are the ones that are nearly impossible, <laughs> but nearly impossible. Right. Yeah. So what do you do next? Right. So, OK, there's do you call like, talent agencies? I mean, do people so even get on the phone took, with you? We took the natural step in calling talent agencies and, and, and managers. And, and again, um, they literally told us to F off. I'm say they and, probably all hung up on you. They right? did. Some literally hung up on us. Some told us not to call here ever again, um, and it was just never going to happen. They, their clients would never do re- reality television, um, and so to forget it. And so then we had to go into another mode, hunt these people down, like at hair salons and 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 you know nail salons and uh, at events where we would approach them directly. And would you bring like a bag of cash with you? It, no, we'd make the pitch to them to at least get a meeting with them because we couldn't even get a meeting. With through the managers and agents, they wouldn't even set up a meeting. They wouldn't even consider it, uh, which I love later because it became such the punchline on, on Entourage. If you remember, when anytime when when I think it was Johnny Drama was acting out, he said, "What are you on a fucking surreal life cast member now?" <laughs> but ultimately, we 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 all we divide and conquered. I flew to Oakland to meet with MC Hammer um, on the idea that we were looking at his own television show, um, and of course we met in this big high profile. Uh, it was the era of the dot com days, and I made it. He when I once I got in the room with him, I started to kind of convey the real idea to him that it wasn't his own show; that it would be a group living in a house. He meeting ended, uh, but at that point we had kind of had a connection. So then I stuck around. Then I got to his house the next day and just stayed on it. You know, Mark went after you know uh, uh, people he knew from the next show. He had a lot of contacts in that area, like Todd Bridges and Gary Coleman. And, uh, Emmanuel Lewis, and so he, we just started to go at it on our own and really try to convince these guys to do it. And we, little by little, we we one, two, three, and we started patching together until we put the cast together. All right. So at the same time, Ryan, you're over in the MTV building, the Viacom building. Yes. And you had been running MTV for a few years at that point. You had gone over to VH1, I believe, 2002. Uh, you took over the channel, and now you have a dual role running not just one network but two. Uh, I think you were what 25 years old at the time. <laughs> but you know you had a reputation as being you know the, the man with the golden touch the Midas touch and you were going to turn VH1 around the same way that you had done for MTV VH1 was a you know obviously a very long standing channel but it was really stuck in the behind the music days if I'm not mistaken at the time right and you're looking for your breakout hit what's going through your sure. head at the time uh, and your awareness of surreal life on the WB absolutely um, I guess a little background we had dined off of Behind the Music for, I don't know, four or five years, uh, and it had done fantastically well, but we were now digging the bottom of the barrel. There was no one left uh, who had went through drug rehab and all of that to, uh, to do a profile on. Um, but there was some learning in that show, and I kept thinking, do we need another kind of music show? But it hit me at some point that that really wasn't a music show, it was a nostalgia show, and that there was this deep desire to celebrate and revisit all of the icons and personalities we had grown up with. And so we started to broaden the aperture of VH1 and say, we're not about music, we're really about nostalgia. 
Uh, and then along came a show called I Love the 80s, which kind of affirmed that approach. Um, but after we had loved the 80s four or five times, there was no more 80s to love. And we were trying to figure out what kind of flagship could possibly carry that idea forward. And maybe a year prior, I'd been flipping the channels and watched Surreal Life uh, and was immediately envious uh, because there were the personalities that were kind of the equivalent of the musicians appearing behind the music, all having fun. And not only that, they weren't simply in a dramatic reality show. It was a really comedic show. And we had taken a very comedic approach at VH1 with I Love the 80s, um, sort of on the idea that celebrating this pop culture uh, is what we wanted to do as opposed to judge it or, or be mean towards it. Um, so I immediately responded to that show. And I also remember thinking it was on a channel that all teenagers were watching when, in fact, it's probably the 30-year-olds who remember those celebrities and who initially had a go-around with Eric Estrada. Um, and so it was in my mind, and we even approached them to air some of the reruns because at the time, networks would let us take those reruns to promote the next season of it. So we took reruns of Surreal Life, as I remember it, to promote it to the WB. But in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, and to someday get it. Um, so that, it was a very conscious, conscious uh, play. But I thought, what are the odds? Because it was doing well enough on WB. But in my gut, I just thought, it's going to do so much better on this platform because it's like the right shirt but on the wrong suit. But if you put it in this suit, it's going to look fantastic and, and be, be great. Um, and so it was almost too good to be true when I heard that the WB wasn't picking up the option, I think, after the second season. Correct. And you're, you're so right. And it really, it, to me, it's still the greatest lesson in now, even my, in my current role, to find not the right deal but the right home for the, the project because it ensured, obviously, it, it, made, it was a testament. What, what, what happened with the WB, we did have some success in the show – it was important to Mark and I that we really tra- stayed somewhat true to the sitcom kind of uh, format, meaning it was they were self-contained. It wasn't. It was you know, to an extent, um, and didn't have any elimination, didn't have any voting, and so forth. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't have any challenges per se, other than real organic. We were trying to call them kind of activities that drove story and comedy. And so the first season did okay, and the first two episodes would always do well, but then they would taper off and then level off and have no no stakes there wasn't any winner and the truth of this of the story is is that they you know survivor came on the scene and did incredibly well we all remember the, like, those crazy numbers were like super bowl numbers that first finale and then of course amazing race later came on and so at while well, at the wb they're like well your your show keeps leveling off what can we do so can we add a competition should we start eliminating and they put us through this entire exercises of we, so we had versions of surreal life where they were eliminating each other. There was house votes like it was like you know Big Brother was just coming had was was obviously here, and it was like what is our version of that? And it just didn't feel right. And it kept we kept bumping up against the that format and development, but we kept doing the work per the network because of course we wanted to pick up. But ultimately, because we were in a very unique position, we had owned we owned the show outright. Um, and I think, and, if, and Brian, you remember that, you know, Mark, I think through your relationship with Mark and Chris Colin, it's funny to what you were saying, or, or no, to what you were saying earlier, no one had done that. No one had gone from ca- from network to cable, right? Like there had been some cable, like, you know, uh, uh, trading spaces turned into you know, extreme home makeover and so forth and others, but no one had gone from uh, network to, yeah, WB was a network at the time, uh, to cable. And I remember being warned by like agents and others, people representatives saying, Biggest, you'll make the biggest mistake of your life. It'll be career enders if you move this show off the network into cable. And the truth is, it was couldn't have been. The, it was the best decision we ever made. You want to name who those agents were? <laughs> <laughs> I can't name names. <laughs> okay, but so 
WB said we're done? They, they or said, did they, 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 did they, they could give it up no, you know, without did, a fight? They, well, to be quiet, and I've shared this story too publicly, I mean, obviously not because I still see him now and, 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 and rib him about it, but Jordan Levin was the uh, head of the WB at the time and Keith Cox was the executive. And yeah, so they didn't pick up our option. So we were floating without an option. Uh, and we were just basically free to do what we did. And, and I don't know if you remember this or not, Brian, but you actually, we went to you and you said, one of the things we said, we said we, there's an opportunity to do it. So we, we retooled the entire pitch and we built the entire cast out of musicians, music people, because it was VH1, it was music. And we went in to see Brian and we made a pitch and he was like, well, what is this? And, and we were like, he's like, well, it's real life. He goes, no, no, no. I want the, the surreal life that you guys made. I don't want this. And I want everyone, the tire mix, I want it exactly as you guys have been making it. And so we're like, are you really like just the way we've been doing it, the way we see it? And he was to your credit was like, yeah, well, how you guys see it. So we're like, this is, this is our home. This is, this is where we should be. Then the WB, once they found out we were moving it, they made an offer to pick it up, but they were outside of their, their, you know, options and pickups notice. Uh, to which Brian, you said, I don't know if you remember this or not, but you, I will never forget this because our agents were like, I think the WB, WB even called you, if it was, whether it was Keith or Jordan, but then you said, you called us and said, guys, I'm not getting involved. You guys have to make a decision. It's up to you guys. If you want to stay with them, stay with there. If you want to come here, you come here. But I'm not going to, you know, one way or the other, or, or, you know, put carrots out there for you guys. I mean, paraphrasing that part, but to that point, and we had to make the decision ourselves. And then Mark and I really just thought long and hard on it, and we and we came to VH1, and like I said, we, and we didn't look back. And not to add, making it add into its right decision, I think years later the WB went away ultimately, right. but we ended up at VH1 and became, like you said, it was the perfect home and fit for it. And so, well, yeah, we just moved on, and we made the exact same show. Sometimes we would be used as a stalking horse because I remember Kathy Griffin's D-list show. She'd come to us every season and say, you can have it. But all she was trying to do was get Bravo to raise her fees. Um, and I didn't want to get trapped in that um, because – but we really wanted it. Yeah. yeah. And so we came yeah, and we, and we moved it over. So obviously the show grew into a behemoth and we'll get into that in a little bit with a thousand different spinoffs and you know shows that were even maybe more popular and influential than, than the mothership itself. But – the initial offer was just for the surreal life. I mean, was your goal and in your, you know, you know, people talk about, you know, your eyes are bigger than the plate, you know, like how big did you think this honestly could be? Or did you think you were just acquiring a show or did you have in the back of your mind designs that, no, 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 this is going to be the beachhead that's going to change sort of the whole face of VH1 as it did. <laughs> I would love to take that kind of foresight credit. Or even halfway what it did. You know? It never works that way. Did you think it was the game changer, though, for VH1, potentially? Um, I thought it was going to be a very important show. And we had some proof because we had done the reruns and they did okay. But any programmer who thinks each launch is the game changer uh, will go down fast and it just doesn't work that way. Um, but it had a really strong pulse from the moment it started. But I don't think there's a person alive who could have ever seen that something like 29 or whatever number shows would come from that because I'd never seen that in the history of cable or TV and I've never seen it since. No, I think it actually, I'm pretty sure has more than all the family, which is the show that gets credit for having the most spinoffs. Yeah. I'm sure surreal life has more. Yeah. I counted 16. <laughs> you know, you we, name them all. In, well, probably, <laughs> probably not, but you know, it was, I, I agree with you. There's no way we went over to make one show and that show at the time was really difficult to make. You know, we were making comedy in reality 
Um, and that was different than just putting people in a house and rolling the cameras and kind of letting the drama unfold. And it was almost easier to incite, produce drama than comedy, to find a joke, a page in a sense, if you would. Like to really, so we, we said we props, you know, the authentic uh, uh, activities, you know, the casting, the way their rooms were set up, like really producing for comedy was was difficult. So what people don't realize is I think we did somewhere, sometimes I forget now, but it was anywhere from eight to 15 episodes, but we only shot for nine days. We shot the entire season in nine days, and we did that because uh, we couldn't get a celebrity to commit to more time than that. And these were people who were being, of course, demolished in the press as C and D celebrities. But it, it, even to this day, I said, I don't care who you call. If I picked up this phone now and called Flavor Flav, he would tell me he's booked for the whole year, you know, how much I'm willing to pay him for a job. And he, he, they were always booked. Everybody was booked, whether they were they were, or, sure. or, or not. And so we we had to do nine, 10 days, one day for interviews, nine days for filming, and we shot the whole thing in that, in that time. So it was an intense uh, process. So when we went over, we just looked at it as one show. Like, we, we can maybe do this twice a year. You know, that's actually the other thing you said. You did say you wouldn't do it twice a year. That was the difference. And then we were like, all right, that's our year. That's our year. Like, we're – so we only – we didn't look at it as past anything other than that. Yeah, we did it twice a year with you guys. The thing that really blew me away about how Chris and Mark worked is because you only had nine compressed days, you had to have that ability to spot story on the fly. And this was just at the time when everybody was starting to fake produce most of reality. Um you guys didn't take that route. You set up an environment for playful things to happen, but you would find where the story was happening with Flav and Brigitte or whomever and produced that in real time, kind of like they do now with Big Brother. And that always impressed me. Yeah, we, we kind of used to say we just keep shooting at their feet and, and, and tracking the story. And, and we would, you know, one thing, we would literally be tracking the story in the control room and then look for a joke. And then if it was like uh, Flav wanted to eat lobster for dinner, we're like, get six pound, you know, get the biggest lobster, because Flay was a little guy. Like, how can we put a, find the biggest lobster to feed him? So put a 10 pound lobster on its plate all of a sudden. And it's just comedy. And it's like, we're just kind of trying to step in front of the, stay in front of the jokes, if you would. But yeah, I mean, it made for some exhausting days. Unbelievable. Before I forget, we should ask, you mentioned it, you own the format. At the time, was that the norm to own formats? Was that a fight that the for the WB to give? Who... Who gets credit for that? Because that obviously was a... <laughs> I don't think anyone really gets credit. I think there's someone who gets blame for, <laughs> for it on it. Uh, yeah, I think it was so the unscripted world was so new in, in network and prime time um, that I think when, when you know, I guess I, I don't remember the particulars of making the deal, but when, you know, we were rep by Chris Cohen at the time and, you know, I think we made a deal at WB that hadn't, if I think about it, I'm not sure if they had pop stars, what they had, how much real experience they had in making the deal. And so I think they, they thought they were maybe uh, they were deficiting for a certain number and we made it for that number. <laughs> or maybe they thought you wouldn't book it. <laughs> and maybe we wouldn't book it. And then we just brought over our deal grandfather into with, with Brian at VH1. Again, at the time, this is at least for Mark and I, we had zero, uh, what, idea what it meant to have ownership what international was we like we were so in the zone the show and 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 nascent in terms of it so the truth be told is even it was it wasn't so much later that we realized the value of owning the show because at the beginning we really we we made a deal with these guys with vh1 and everything just lived there and from our side i knew we were in a competitive situation that the wb as a network would have done a license deal so to do anything less than a license deal would have been, in my mind, probably not to have gotten the show. Um, 
uh, I got a lot of shit for it years later from Philippe Dumont, which I'll be transparent about. Um, I always thought people like Mark and Chris should be rewarded because they're the ones that went on the journey, went to MCU Hammer's house three years prior, not VH1. Um, so I didn't lose one second sleep over it. Other people did. Yeah. And by the way, had it, you know, once it's a hit, none of that stuff matters. Or it mean matters, but you wouldn't have ordered multiple seasons and all the iterations of it, even under these deal terms, had it not been good business yes. in some degree. Yes, VH1 made hundreds of millions of dollars literally on those franchises and ad sales revenue that you could directly trace to those shows. Um, and although the international is valuable, it certainly didn't compare for us to what they made off of their primary business. So the show comes to VH1. And right out of the gate, is it a hit? Is it a hit beyond your wildest expectations? I mean, how did it compare to the WB sort of launch and experience? I mean, whoa. What's going on in your mind? Like, my oh, we made the right choice. Yeah, no, my recollection. Well, obviously, the right choice was because of the longevity of the project. But my recollection of the first season, and you know, we were on broadcast, we were on network, and and it was competitive then, and, and people knew this in real life. But not until it aired on VH1 did we did it really hit. In my mind, in my recollection, that it became a pop culture phenomenon. Really, and I think it goes back to finding that right audience who were talking about it. All the while, the numbers, and I don't remember exactly what they were on the WB. It was it was decent. It wasn't it didn't tank or anything, but it wasn't like a phenomenon. It wasn't like people were talking about it or laughing about it or or at the time what was it message boarding at the time uh, about it. It wasn't a conversation, and not until they got on VH1 and I think found that audience that it resonated with, as Brian said, the, uh, I love the '80s and behind the music that it became this like it was in the zeitgeist. It just became a conversation. Uh, and it did, I'm sure it helped because we had a lot of antics on the show. Sure, I remember someone <laughs> peeing in the corner. Yeah, for sure. We went for those moments, but yeah, I think I I don't remember the numbers in the beginning of what it was, but I remember it definitely becoming a conversation. The thing I remember, we you know WB could only air it once a week. We could air it 72 times a week and did, and I think that really helped put it culturally over the top. And we didn't always get great numbers out of the repeats, but you were seeding it in people's minds. That's right. I think that's a, that's a great point. That was at the beginning when you guys really were the first ones doing that and the repeat kind of in day parts and at night. Yeah, you really had – you're right. And that may be the only difference we really wanted in a deal was the ability to run it a lot just because that was the economic model. But more importantly, it was the pop culture model. So it comes out. It's a hit. works. You're running it 72 times a week and you're feeling good. What was the first sort of conversation you can remember about potential spinoffs – and ultimately, also, the uh, really, I think, groundbreaking deal you guys had at the time, Chris, where I mean, you only were doing projects for VH1. And I, it was upwards of, what, 10 a year, and you were exclusive to them. I mean, things that you just don't really see anywhere anymore. I mean, how did it go from, okay, this is a hit, to, wow, we're going to sign over you know, half, half of you know, our schedule to, to these guys? To me, it all happened because Flav and Bridget, Brigitte fell in love. And had that happened, not happened, who knows what would have, but that was the first spinoff. That was the, that was the first at the beginning. We, so we did two seasons on the, on the WB. Our third season was what premiered on, on VH1, and then that really took off. I think by the third season, we, the characters were resonating so, so huge with, with the audience um, in it. And some of these people were doing, we started to look at them for, for other opportunities. And because we became so embedded with them, we got to know them really well. And I think is to for Brian's point is that we would we would track these stories while they were happening, and it was a real love affair, right? Flav and Brigitte, and it was so odd because, like I said, he was little and she was so tall. 
it was just it just didn't you know uh, uh, look right. But they were real. There's a real relationship, and and I remember going. We what we did was we we put it. We got a wedding cake, and we put a wedding topper on it, and it was a short you know black guy with a really tall. Uh, and there we waiting on it, and we had and we photoshopped and we sent them a picture over to Brian and Jeff Old, and they were just so funny. It was just it was like, what if these two got married? <laughs> and, and, and that was the whole pitch. That literally was the pitch. What if these two got married? And so <laughs> these guys were like, go, go, and we we, we went after it, and and that became the very yeah first spinoff. And then that once that worked, that really put us on to give us an eye on the next castings. So we started to look for those kind of like relationships in the house, like MC Hammer and, you know, uh, Emmanuel Lewis became friends. So we were looking, is there the Manny Moe and Hammer show? And then we were like, uh, uh, you know, Christopher Knight and Adrian Curry, that turned into a relationship. Was there something there? You know, it's like we started to pay attention more so once that worked. I always say the best thing that happened to us was that Flav and Brigitte fell in love. The second best thing that happened is they fell out of love, so we had she to find know. him. And had that not happened, we, we might have just capped it, there. You know, it, it is so true, and I think, I, and I, and I, you, you're not. I'm really like reminiscing on it, but to your to your guys's credit, and Jeff, who we were working with, who I love, sorry, I still love about Jeff Old was that when you introduced him to us, he had a card that said consultant on it, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he never left. He never left. And Brian's like, I want you guys to meet Jeff Old. He's going to be helping you guys out. Um, but to you guys' credit, I think when you now we're, we're talking about this, you see that it was just a really organic progression following the storylines. And you guys encouraged us to do that because it is true. Uh, Brigitte dumped Flav. And, and I, I get that question asked all the time if we ever talk about on the subject. That was a real, Flav was really in love with her, and he dumped her. And he was in my office, uh, you know, and... He dumped her, she dumped no, him. No, she dumped she him, dumped sorry, him. she dumped him. And he was in my office brokenhearted. And I was like, Flav, you're going to find another girl, don't worry about it. He says, no, I really like her, and she lives in Italy. I said, you're going to find another girl. I said, in fact, I said, you know what? We should find your girlfriend on television. And he's like, what? I said, you, have you ever seen The Bachelor? And he goes, no. And I go, it's, you know, the guy goes on there and he dates all these girls. And he goes, and he, he I mean, serious. He looks at me, he goes, come on, Chris. He goes, you know, no one's ever going to pick me. I was like, no, you're The Bachelor. You do the picking. And he was like, word. <laughs> I was like, you'd be the, the Bachelor. My original title never survived because it was, it was Probably still a bad timing for it, but I told him you're going to be the black chiller. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he we just he he didn't really get it in the time. But I walked down the hall to Mark's office uh, and I said, "Dayton, show with Flav. Flav needs a girlfriend. What if we found uh, him a, a girlfriend?" And what people don't know, and I don't know how much is like I've never really talked about this, but we actually shot over a weekend a little test tape, a little pilot, if you will, where we brought because to Jeff's. Uh, uh, and Brian's brother's like, uh, could Flav date, you know, 14 girls? And what would that look like? And, and we stayed true to Flav, like what he was looking for. And we shot over a weekend. We brought some girls in and we, we ended up some great tape, which I wish I knew where it was. Uh, and that tape was what set off Flavor of Love. I remember screening that tape yeah. at one of those VH1 screenings. <laughs> um, and it got an incredible reaction uh, in terms of how people responded in the room. But the conversation afterwards was much more controversial, uh, for all the reasons sure, you can, can imagine. imagine. Um, yeah, so it was. It took a bit of navigating to make sure that <laughs> one got on TV. Well, and I think that uh, that does speak though to a secondary legacy for the show, which is bringing characters to television. You know, or this family of shows bringing characters to television who were not on television, certainly not in prime time. You know, and being treated seriously. 
uh, I mean, did you realize that you were, you know, that you were diversifying TV in that way that now is just so commonplace? We, we take it for granted. You know, to be honest with you, I, we, for me personally, I didn't really realize it because, you know, obviously I haven't been a, you know, Hispanic descent. And it was like, it was a world I knew really well. And to be like, to, once it aired, I will, to, as Brian just said, listen, I actually, uh, I have a really good friend of mine, uh, African-American guy, who I sent him, sent him the first episode. We, we shot that show in a bubble. And hearing what you're saying now, it, I, I get more credit to you because you guys didn't really give us any restrictions. You let us go make the show. And we went and made the show. Uh, and we stayed true to Flav. And I remember sending this first episode to a friend of mine. And he, he said, holy shit, Chris. I think you're going to set back the Black Race 20 years. He's like, but I've never laughed so hard. He goes, you have a hit on your hands. And the show premiered, and I think it didn't premiere well. Like, it was like New Year's Day. I think it was like nothing. And then it just grew. Like, I think I had like four or five million people watch the finale or whatever the number it was. But the, the, number one, the number one thing I would get is where do you, where'd you find those people? And to me, it was where I grew up. Like, it's everyone I knew. Like, that's what, that was, it wasn't that to your, to your point. I didn't really realize I was doing something, putting a, a certain, you know, Type of casting pool on television for the first time that was really had not been seen and um, and so to everyone who had said said well where do you find those people I'm like well you won try leaving getting outside of you know L A or New York I was like it's the country you know I remember when the housewives came on because we we used to get beat up for our show for you know the, the women on our show but then the housewives came on and they you know African American women they but they were wearing Louboutin. And they were still fighting, but throwing expensive champagne at each other. No one said anything. But in our house, we were getting all the flack. And I was like, wow, there's a, a class difference in it, in the way it's looked at. And so, um, yeah, that's a whole, that was a, that was a whole entire experience on that on itself. And, but being true to our storytelling, we were getting so much heat about the, the women on our show. We created Charm School. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> We're like, listen, everyone thinks these are are, are uh, uh, women who aren't refined and, and, and have no manners. And we're like, well, that could be true. So let's so we create a charm school. So every time you're faced with a problem, you've got to eat I mean, we really follow the story. Yeah. We, 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 would, we would just have these great dialogues and then figure out how to turn it into a narrative. It really was all story inspired. Yeah. I now that I'm that. thinking about it. Yeah. Right? Because that became a reaction to, yeah. to the, all the bad press and everything that we were doing. And we're like, well, what do they want us to do? Maybe we should put these girls in charm school. We're like, there we go, let's do it. Problem solved. <laughs> Problem solved. All right, so Brian, you talked a bit about brand and how, I forget the exact phrase you used, but you know, moving Surreal Life to, you know, from VH1 or WB to VH1 was you know, just kind of putting the right show in the, in the proper suit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the only time you did that. Uh, I remember sitting in one of those screenings and the Jersey Shore, you know, it was a VH1 right. show initially. And you had the foresight to move it to MTV. Um, you know, I knew even going back earlier in your career, right? South Park, you know, your Christmas card that you famously created, yeah. right? Initially, right, you were working at Fox at the mm-hmm. time. Obviously, it worked out pretty well that that wound up on Comedy Central. I mean, in today's day and age, and we're going to pivot maybe a little bit from just Surreal Life specifically here, how much does that brand matter? You know, there was a time probably in the mid-2000s when brand to me didn't matter too much because distribution was kind of locked in place and there weren't a lot of new cable channels coming. So I just wanted a bigger hit than the next guy. And if I had to go outside the brand to get it, that was still the only way to win. But now that we're moving into a complete sort of over-the-top world or an on-demand world, 
Now I think brand matters immensely because why would I ever go to something with the moniker of MTV unless it stood for something? I'm just going to go straight to my show. And I think there are the people like HGTV who have a really good brand have succeeded in moving across platforms. And the people who've had a much more diffuse brand have had a real hell of a time uh, trying to be spike on a variety of networks or platforms. Other. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think you're, as your brand now, I mean, obviously you look at Netflix and you realize this in itself is, is attractive. You, you assume you're going to get premium content. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the brand, then you don't show up there. Yeah. I remember South Park too. Um, it was not unlike Chris's story because I was at Fox and Fox didn't want it. Uh, and so we could have shopped it to network, but Comedy Central felt like the right place. But Comedy Central was an outpost. And I remember agents distinctly saying, this will be the end of your career. And I had left Fox to do the show with them. So that didn't like sound like a good thing at age 32. Um, but it was the right, it was the platform that needed us the most. And a lot of times when we're selling shows now, I think not only what is the right fit, but who needs us the most. So is that the lesson learned? If an agent tells you it's the end of your career, do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, absolutely. Always. Yeah, if you take away one thing. Always. Don't take it away from an agent. So another piece, and I touched on it a little bit, was the fact that you know, VH1 as a channel handed over basically the keys to the car to an outside production company um, and one company. I mean, at, at the peak, you were, VH1 Minds was programming at least half of the schedule, if not more. Um, and certainly from a sort of a relevant standpoint, much more than that. I mean, in today's day and age where this relationship that you guys have, which is clearly so affectionate and, and built on respect, just doesn't exist in a lot of places, why didn't more networks sort of follow that path? You know, I mean, when I, I, I can't think of another example of a network just gobbling up a company entirely like that, even though what VH1 did with you was so incredibly successful. Why, why hasn't it happened again? Could it happen again? Uh, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on, on that? Uh, yeah, you're right. At one point, we were doing probably about 130 hours of television for the channel. Um, but more so than that was really our relationship, Mark and, my, and myself, the relationship with, with Brian and, and Jeff and the entire team at VH1. It became, it was just such an incredible dialogue and conversation from, you know, development, what we were working on and things, needs as, as these guys had. Um, and ideas that we thought, because it, as much as we were doing, and I find it's hard to believe, but they didn't say yes to everything <laughs> on it. Um, and it, it, even at some point, that's how I got to uh, do a show for MTV, because I wanted to to grow m m my bandwidth of what I was doing. So I had to go to Brian, who allowed me to do G's to Gents uh, with Jamie Foxx, but in, even though I was doing all stuff with VH1, but it's find it hard to believe that they didn't say yes to everything, but it was really... And I, I really, I tell other current, you know, uh, executives that I'm, I deal with and I have relationships with that how important it is to really have a trust and a dialogue with, you know, a creator, you know, a, a production company, because that really, when you align yourself, I found that why we had success was not just because the shows were, were, were great and I, and I appreciate how much people love them, but really when I look at it, it was the partnership we had with these guys. It was just such a dialogue. I remember at one point we went to New York and Brian and Jeff were so gracious. I mean, it was the first time I saw, looked behind the curtain and I saw that there was like a hundred people back there marketing digital. Like it was like, I was like, who are these people? Like, like all we knew is Brian and, and, and Jeff and they brought us into the fold and we're like, well, to th start to think how we could better, you know, um, 
uh, used the, the, the content or when we think of our development, what you guys were looking for. So, yeah, it was a really unique partnership, and I think it was a big part of why we had the success we did. I also think a lot of network executives uh, measure their worth in volume of notes, and I always had the inverse opinion, which is if I'm giving tons of notes, I made a mistake. Um, if you find a partner like Chris, Chris and Mark, and they can do their thing that's better than what you could ever offer in your notes, then you actually won. Then you did your job. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, trust from our side was just immensely important too. That's a great line. If you think you're giving notes, you picked the wrong partner. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it's. Like, I, I, I would agree with that. I think as you're, you're right. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Yeah. No, that, yeah, it's it's. The other thing is, you guys managed to maintain quality across 130 hours. Many production companies are very boutique exercises, and that's okay. But I think a lot of companies couldn't necessarily maintain the quality and go to that volume that quickly. But you guys did. Yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely aged on it, but we did. We, we it's, the big part of it is that, and, and you know, Mark and I, we we worked really, really well together. Uh, it was a divide and conquer. But we, the, the truth is, and, I, and I'm sure if you asked him, we had a lot of fun. We were just talking about that. We really had fun. And I, I still this quote from from Jeff all the time when he would pop in he would come into our control room and he would say he would feel like he's watching theater because it was such a real time and you could sit there in the control room and it, it was obviously long hours but it wasn't labor you would laugh I mean you would see Flav and Brigitte you know on a romantic dinner and like that's enough said you're like you're watching that in real time it was so we had fun it was it was like I said long hours and it was hard and you know hard days but we really had a lot of fun making those shows yeah. the other thing that trust is so important is occasionally you will come across things like New York having her accident on the stairs where it is really tricky for a network um, and it goes beyond just being supportive sure. because you're putting a billion dollar business at risk and that's where I found trust came into play particularly because you didn't presume we were just being asshole network executives Correct. we had a real concern too and since we had hopefully shown respect for their concerns uh, two way street yeah, because we would push these guys, but we obviously these guys. You, you really like you. You and I always said this. To, I've said this to Brian before. Just in, and I and I'm always grateful because just in in trusting us to guide in our creativity to to produce. But like I said, there were times like guys, listen, you've had we've said yes to all this. That's not happening. <laughs> that that's got to get cut out. Or like <laughs> and Mark Mark would make. So in fact, I have I, I don't have it here, but they sent over. They framed it. It was a standards and practice uh, uh, notes back on, and these notes are ridiculous, like what we try to get past, that they said no to. <laughs> he was like, there will be no shit on the stairs. You're like, mm, there will be no, it's like, and they actually framed it and sent it to us and, and gave Mark and I a copy uh, because we would, we pushed the envelope. And I think it was, I think, and in, in, I think to you guys, you allowed us to push the envelope and you guys would push back, but it was, it was not trust. We were just, we got it. It made, it made sense. Right. But then you have a partner who, is making that joke yeah. means you have the right partner. Yeah. All right. And Ben who did our scheduling of H1, was a great ally. But I mean, he would send me little prompts like, reminder, the shit episode is airing on Sunday. <laughs> so I could be mentally prepared be for whatever was coming my be way ready. Monday. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> so, you know, in today's climate, why aren't more people having fun? You know, because I think as I talk to my friends and colleagues, I'm sure you guys do, too. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure and margins are being squeezed and ratings are down and everyone's nervous. I mean... Is that really the only reason people are having, aren't having fun? I mean, what are you having fun in your company today? Hopefully. Yeah, yeah but. for sure. But I think it's a choice, um, meaning that this is getting kind of broad, but I think consolidation has made it to where there's only a handful of masters. 
and so you begin to think, how do I please the masters versus how do I have the most fun? And I think when there were a larger number of companies and a larger number of distribution opportunities, then you could sort of align with the people who, where you could have the most fun. And I just think that's less possible today. Yeah. I would add, I think you're right. I mean, I think they're, you're right. I think you talk to, as we, I'm sure as we all do talk to our colleagues now, we all feel like we're pushing that same boulder up, up that hill. Um, but I think it, it, you can't lose sight of like that if you're truly in this business because you have a passion for it, then you should have to have some fun doing it. It's when the most creative comes out. Um, that being said, you're right. It's a time with the fragmentation of audiences that the everyone's kind of pursuing the bottom line. I was in a pitch a couple of years ago, and this is when I really knew, um, and I won't say where, but I was in a pitch where after pitching the creative, the executive broke out a calculator to factor what the potential rating might be against the budget. And and and, and I, that's when I realized the, the, the reality of the algorithm that we all heard about, like uh, what it, what this would cost, what it might get, and could it make a dollar? And you're, it was just when getting back to our relationship with VH1 in those days was like, come on, we, our pitches would be like, come on, it's funny, isn't it? That was the extent of the game. argument. Yeah. Let's play on a wedding gig, right? It's funny, right? And that was, that was the extent of the pitch. And that was like, no, what, what is it? But should, should there be any other reason to do a show besides I like it and I think it'll do well? I mean, shouldn't that ultimately be the sort of the barometer? I thought so. Um, so for me, gut always trumped research and it's not to dismiss research. You could learn a lot, but to me at the end of the day, did I laugh or did I not? Did I cry or did I not? It was just that simple. Yeah. I think it, that, that, that was really for us. And, uh, did we laugh? And Mark and I, when we would develop these shows, it really, that was the barometer. Did we laugh? Did we think it was funny? Uh, and that, and that we would move forward. And typically the answer was yes. <laughs> I think so. Most, most times, not all the time. So, so, you know, this is the way that the industry is trending and all these pressures and not as much fun and more, you know, fewer masters. And I mean, is it just going to continue to go in that direction? Is there a pivot? You know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of emerging platforms or are they going to ever be big enough or consequential enough to take on the broadcast networks or certainly the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world? I mean, where do you see, you know, if we have this conversation in five years, what do you think we'll be talking about? You know, it's been an interesting time because in the last five years, we've sold shows to Red State and Complex and Spotify and a host of other YouTube Red, two or three projects with them. Um, but who survives is anybody's guess because a lot of people have come into the marketplace with $100 million to spend and then 12 months later, they're gone. Um, I hope that's – and meanwhile, Netflix has kind of grown into the singular behemoth that it is. Um, I hope that it shakes out such that there are a lot of different distribution opportunities but I don't think anybody knows yet. I would add, I think, listen, I think there, there's still a lot of opportunity to have fun. This, especially for, you know, content creators, it's an incredible time right now, right? There's just so many outlets and platforms and uh, for bigger companies, it might, maybe it's more of a struggle and a focus in, in, on that bottom line. I think at the same time, when you look at specifically, you know, unscripted, you were so reflective of what's happening just culturally and globally in the country. And so you look at the, even the, the amount of comedies, like like you think Jackass could break out today in this climate, uh, you know, uh, what it was when, you know, versus Stranger Things and 13 Reasons and what young people are looking at where Jackass was, you know, absolute absurdity, but it was incredible, right? Like for me, it was just one of the, you know, iconic shows. Could it break out today in this culture today with everything that's happening in the world today? And I, I don't know if it would. I don't know if it's, it's like, so I think that it's, 
there's some of the fun shows are not even being developed because the darker, you know, scripted series are, 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 are what's what's selling and the anti-hero and then and then the hard challenges and, you know, sort of that sort of thing. I think, you know, we really you know, scripted, I think, at least is if features are driving a certain, you know, big pop culture trend unscripted because it can move where used to move really quick. But because it moves quicker than scripted, it can capitalize on what's happening culture wise. And so I think it just needs a shift and, you know, finding some comedy again, some lighthearted entertainment. One thing that obviously is going now is in the reality, it seems everyone wants premium and sometimes premium equals dark and full circle. What I loved about surreal life is it made you feel good. It was comfort food. It was warm. It was fun. I think it would be harder to get that over today because people don't want to be perceived as frivolous, even if you provide a real value to the audience. Um, I think that's part of the struggle. I don't know fun or frivolous or saucy it's hard to get that over now even though i think there's still an audience for it i think you're right. you know we loaded in uh we for the first time in the u.s we did celebrity big brother uh and you know it's what it, wb basically correct. asked you for so, 15 years ago so we loaded the house in and i'm sitting there you know and so obviously an incredibly talented producers you know rich and allison are, are doing what they do so well but as soon as all the celebrities got loaded into the house i mean I, it was like that scene out of Ratatouille when the guy bites the food, and I, I just had—I was sitting in front of this real life control room because watching these celebrities, it would always first, and it was just it's so reminiscent. And then you watch that series, and it did incredibly well for CBS. But it was because it was, I think it was what you're saying—it was frivolous and it was fun. And, and Ross Matthews was, was incredibly funny, and there was a villain, and just all the kind of like hyped up super characters, and it really brought back like it made me think, man, maybe the, the market is ready for. Backwards in real life, or or something of that sort, where it's just a comedic, you know, you know, good time. Well, sure. To that point, you own the format. Are we going to see surreal life three point <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. I don't. Uh, probably not. I don't. It. We talked a little bit about it a, a year or two ago. I don't know. I think I don't know if this because now, it, you know, obviously Big Brother it worked too because it is a great format, and it had that game in it, which was a great game. And it, I don't know. I don't know if. Uh, just a sitcom of that would survive in it because the it kind of as you said, Brian, the, when we did the '80s and the, we're all '80s out. The celebrity kind of casting pool, you know, has gotten to a place where because you have to remember this was pre Dancing with the Stars, before Celebrity Apprentice, before any uh, um, celebrity get me out of here. So it was a really small, narrow uh, casting pool where you could still surprise people with somebody. Now it's like it's difficult to find that. that I think that really great cast that could just sustain a sitcom format sure but how ironic i guess that the fear that the wb had all those years ago was that you wouldn't be able to cast it and now to your point about premium brian i know from my experiences you try and sell a show now that doesn't have a celebrity attached good luck to you it's really remarkable how in 15 years that pendulum has swung absolutely no it is just now we're obviously because we're just i think we're just a part of the genre now right we're just a part even though I think, you know, I think the whole pop culture world has changed. I think you would say, you know, you know, you could go out, leave our bubble of Los Angeles and and because the difference between a movie star and a reality star, what used to be the Grand Canyon now is nothing like there is no what movie star isn't as big as Kim Kardashian. Like, what is what's the difference? There really isn't They're, They both cover. Well, the difference is they're now. less famous than her. <laughs> Good point. And probably less wealthy too. Probably true. And they, yeah. you know, cover. They all cover at get the cover of Vanity Fair. They're all over us weekly. It's it, on both sides now. So it's like what, there is no real space in between anymore. Did you? I mean, did you see this coming with the Osbournes all those years ago? I mean, that truly was the first time 
I think anyone had attempted something like this. Yeah, I can remember one of my bosses saying, oh, great, another D-minus celebrity reality show <laughs> with the newlyweds in particular, which came just right. around the Osbournes. Um, but you could go from D-minus to A overnight thanks to the world that Chris created. And I remember thinking when I watched Surreal Life on VH1 the first time that it was like a dream you have because Tammy Faye and Ron Jeremy would be at a party <laughs> in your dream, and that makes perfect sense until you wake up. Or and that's pretty dream. much what happened. Yeah. yeah, oh, my God, I forgot about those two. You're right. Yeah, we had some casts. We had some characters on that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm sure your Christmas parties were, uh, <laughs> you know, legendary. Yeah, no, it was, it was, that's right. We had Tammy Faye and we, we took him to a nudist colony. <laughs> <laughs> what were we thinking? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, well, I think I'd be remiss, you know, before we sign off here, if I didn't ask you to at least try and name as many of those spinoffs as you could. Oh, my gosh. Let's see. Uh, there was a Surreal Life, Strange Love, Flavor of Love, Rock of Love, Charm School, I love New York, um, and all these. By the way, had multiple seasons in them. So I love New York. Um, money. Uh, uh, I love money. Yeah. Uh, for love of Ray J. Um, the did I say Charm School? I think I said Charm School already. Uh, rock of love. Rock of yeah, yeah. Rock of love. And uh, what else? We had, we even spun out Lala, who used to host the reunions. We were one of the first to do the reunion. We did a reunion for the first time, and then we got Lala to host it, and then we spun her off in her own show. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm sure I'm missing a bunch. But. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, but you got a lot of them, right? But yeah, you, you <laughs> love Bus and New York went oh, to Hollywood. Right. She that's, went oh to work. Gosh, you're right. That's real, en- real enchance. Real <laughs> oh enchance had Legend Hunters. Oh wow, Frank Basement Affair. Oh, that's right. Yeah, oh, there's my gosh. there were a lot. Jeez. There were a lot. So I don't know. Okay. Yeah, with all these, this gentleman here, the, thanks to these guys. He saw it it all. He saw it all coming, right? Absolutely. (laughs) So there it is, the full story of Surrealite. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art, and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thanks as well to our guests, Brian Graydon and Chris Abrego, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. Since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back again next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind.